Google Dalenda Est. By itself, genius can produce original thoughts just as little as a woman by herself can bear children. Outward circumstances must come to fructify genius and be, as it were, a father to its progeny. Arthur Schopenhauer on Genius, the Art of Literature June 2011 Mark Zuckerberg is a genius, not in the Asperger's autistic way depicted in the very fictional movie, The Social Network, the cognitive genius of exceptional ability. That's a modern definition that reduces the original meaning. Nor would I claim he was the Steve Jobsian product genius either. Anyone claiming as much will have to explain the crowded graveyard of forgotten Facebook product failures. Remember Home, the Facebook-enabled home screen for Android phones, launched with much fanfare in 2013, Zuck appearing alongside the CEO of the soon-to-be-disappointed smartphone maker HTC, or Facebook's misguided bet on HTML5 in 2012, which slowed the mobile app to a frustrating crawl? How about Facebook's first version of Search, available in English only, mostly useful for checking out your friend's single female friends, and since discontinued? Footnote. My friends of friends who are female and live in San Francisco was the most popular query for Facebook search shortly after launch. While this search feature has been retired, FB has made considerable improvements to its search features since then. End footnote. The standalone mobile app Paper, which was a shameless ripoff of Flipboard? Footnote. The internal idea incubator behind Paper and a host of other failed apps was called Creative Labs, an attempt to recapture the creative zest of corporate youth. It was shut down altogether in December 2015. End footnote. Some unlaunched products I can't name consumed considerable resources, dying internally after Zuck changed his mind and shut them down. If he's a product genius, then there's lots of serendipity counterbalancing his divine madness. No. I submit he was an old-school genius, the fiery force of nature possessed by a tutelary spirit of seemingly supernatural providence that fuels and guides him, intoxicates his circle, and compels his retinue to be great as well. The Jefferson, the Napoleon, the Alexander, the Jim Jones, the L. Ron Hubbard, the Joseph Smith, keeper of a messianic vision that, though mercurial and stinting on specifics, presents an overwhelming and all-consuming picture of a new and different world. Have a mad vision, and you're a kook. Get a crowd to believe in it as well, and you're a leader. By imprinting this vision on his disciples, he founded the church of a new religion. All the early Facebook employees have their story of the moment when they saw the light and realized that Facebook wasn't some measly social network like MySpace, but a dream of a different human experience. With all the fervor of recent converts, newly recruited followers attracted other committed, smart, and daring engineers and designers, themselves seduced by the echoes of the Zuckian vision in others. Then there was the culture he created. Many cool valley companies have engineering-first cultures, but Facebook took it to a different level. The engineers ran the place, and so long as you shipped code and didn't break anything, too often, you were golden. The spirit of subversive hackery guided everything. In the early days, a Georgia college kid named Chris Putnam created a virus that made your Facebook profile resemble MySpace, then the social media incumbent. It went rampant and started deleting user data as well. Instead of sicking the FBI dogs on Putnam, Facebook co-founder Dustin Moskovitz invited him for an interview and offered him a job. He went on to become one of Facebook's more famous and rage-filled engineers. 
That was the uniquely piratical attitude. If you could get shit done and quickly, nobody cared much about credentials or traditional legalistic morality. The hacker ethos prevailed above all. This culture is what kept 23-year-old kids who were making half a million a year in a city where there was lots of fun on offer if you had the cash tethered to a corporate campus for 14-hour days. They ate three meals a day there, sometimes slept there, and did nothing but write code, review code, or comment on new features in internal Facebook groups. On the day of the IPO, Facebook's victory rally, the ads area was full of busily working engineers at 8 p.m. on a Friday. All were at that point worth real money, even fuck-you money for some, and all were writing code on the very day their paper turned to hard cash. At Facebook, your start date was celebrated by the company the way evangelicals celebrate the day they were baptized and found Jesus, or the way new American citizens celebrate the day they took their oath in front of the flag. This event was called, really, your faceversary, and every colleague would rush to congratulate you on Facebook, of course, just as normal people did for one another on their birthdays. Often the company or your colleagues would order you a garish surprise bouquet for your desk with one of those huge mylar balloons in the shape of a two or whatever. When someone left Facebook, usually around when the balloons said four or five, everyone would treat it as a death as you were leaving the current plane of existence and going to another one, though it wasn't assumed this next plane was better than the current one. The tombstone of your Facebook death was a photo posted on Facebook of your weathered and worn corporate ID. It was customary to include a weepy suicide note slash self-written epitaph, and the post would garner hundreds of likes and comments inside a minute. To the deceased, it felt like a passing, too. When you left Facebook, you left the employee-only Facebook network, which meant that all the posts from internal groups, with secret company stuff, were gone. Your posts got less distribution among other Facebook employees, who were on it 24-7, of course, and your Facebook feed, which had become your only social view on the world, suddenly slowed to a near-empty crawl. Almost instantly, someone would add you to the ex-Facebook secret groups, which served as a sort of post-employment purgatory, where former employees discussed the company. Pause and consider all this for a lingering moment. The militant engineering culture, the all-consuming work identity, the apostolic sense of devotion to a great cause, the cynics will read statements from Zuckerberg or some other senior exec about creating a more open and connected world and think, oh, what sentimental drivel. The critics will read of a new product tweak or partnership and think Facebook is doing it only to make more money. They're wrong. Facebook is full of true believers who really, really, really are not doing it for the money and really, really will not stop until every man, woman, and child on earth is staring into a blue-framed window with a Facebook logo. Which, if you think about it, is much scarier than simple greed. The greedy man can always be bought at some price or another, and his behavior is predictable. But the true zealot? He can't be had at any price, and there's no telling what his mad visions will have him and his followers do. That's what we're talking about with Mark Elliott Zuckerberg and the company he created. In June 2011, Google launched an obvious Facebook copy called Google+. Plus. Obnoxiously wired into other Google products like Gmail and YouTube, it was meant to join all users of Google services into one online identity, much as Facebook did for the Internet as a whole. Given you had a Google Plus sign-up button practically everywhere in your Google user experience, the possibility of its network growing exponentially was very real indeed. 
also, the product itself was pretty good, in some ways better than Facebook. The photo sharing was better and more geared to serious photographers, and much of the design cleaner and more minimalist. An additional plus for Google+, Plus: it had no ads, as Google could subsidize it with AdWords, its paid search goldmine. This was the classic one-hand-washing-the-other tactic of the ruthless monopolist, like Microsoft using the revenue from Windows to crush Netscape Navigator with Explorer back in the 90s. By owning search, Google would bankroll taking over social media as well. This sudden move was somewhat surprising. For years, Google had been famously dismissive of Facebook, the rarefied heights of its search monopoly making it feel untouchable. But as the one-way parade of expensive talent from Google to Facebook continued with no end in sight, Google got nervous. Companies are like countries. The populations really vote only with their feet, either coming or going. Google instituted a policy whereby any desirable Googler who got a Facebook offer would have it beaten instantly by a heaping Google counteroffer. This, of course, caused a rush of Googlers to interview at Facebook, only to use the resulting offer as a bargaining chip to improve their Google pay. But many were legitimately leaving. The Googlers at Facebook were a bit like the Greeks during the rise of the Roman Empire. They brought lots of civilization and tech culture with them, but it was clear who was going to run the world in the near future. Google Plus was Google finally taking note of Facebook and confronting the company head-on, rather than via cloak-and-dagger recruitment shenanigans and catty disses at tech conferences. It hit Facebook like a bomb. Zuck took it as an existential threat, comparable to the Soviets placing nukes on Cuba in 1961. This was the great enemy's sally into our own hemisphere, and it gripped Zuck like nothing else. He declared lockdown, the first and only one during my time there. As was duly explained to the more recent employees, lockdown was a state of war that dated to Facebook's earliest days, when no one could leave the building while the company confronted some threat, either competitive or technical. How, might you ask, was lockdown officially announced? We received an email at 1.45 p.m. the day Google Plus launched, instructing us to gather around the aquarium. Actually, it technically instructed us to gather around the lockdown sign. This was a neon sign bolted to the upper reaches of the aquarium, above the cube of glass, almost like the no-vacancy sign on a highway motel. By the time the company had gathered itself around, that sign was illuminated, tipping us off to what was coming. Zuckerberg was usually a poor speaker. His speech came at the rapid clip of someone accustomed to analyzing language for content only, and at the speed of a very agile mind that didn't have time for rhetorical flourishes. It was geek-speak, basically, the English language as spoken by people who had four screens of computer code open at once. His bearing was aloof and disconnected from his audience, and yet he maintained that intense stare that bordered on the psychopathic. It was an unnerving look that irrevocably rattled more than one interlocutor, typically some poor employee undergoing a withering product review, and it stared out from every fortune or time cover he graced. It was easy to project a creepy persona onto that gaze. That unfortunate first impression, plus the mischaracterization in the film The Social Network, was probably responsible for half of the ever-present suspicion and paranoia surrounding Facebook's motives. But occasionally, Zuck would have a charismatic moment of lucid greatness, and it would be stunning. The 2011 lockdown speech didn't promise to be one of those moments. It was delivered completely impromptu from the open space next to the stretch of desks where the executive staff sat. 
All of Facebook's engineers, designers, and product managers gathered around him in a rapt throng. The scene brought to mind a general addressing his troops in the field. The contest for users, he told us, would now be direct and zero-sum. Google had launched a competing product. Whatever was gained by one side would be lost by the other. It was up to all of us to up our game while the world conducted live tests of Facebook versus Google's version of Facebook and decided which it liked more. He hinted vaguely at product changes we would consider in light of this new competitor. The real point, however, was to have everyone aspire to a higher bar of reliability, user experience, and site performance. In a company whose overarching mantras were, done is better than perfect, and perfect is the enemy of the good, this represented a course correction, a shift to the concern for quality that typically lost out to the drive to ship. It was the sort of nagging paternal reminder to keep your room clean that Zuck occasionally dished out after Facebook had suffered some embarrassing bug or outage. Rounding off another beaded string of platitudes, he changed gears and erupted with a burst of rhetoric referencing one of the ancient classics he had studied at Harvard and before. You know, one of my favorite Roman orators ended every speech with the phrase Carthago delenda est. Carthage must be destroyed. For some reason, I think of that now. He paused as a wave of laughter tore through the crowd. The aforementioned orator was, of course, Cato the Elder, a noted Roman senator and inveyor against the Carthaginians, who clamored for the destruction of Rome's great challenger in what became the Third Punic War. Reputedly, he ended every speech with that phrase, no matter the topic. Carthago delenda est. Carthage must be destroyed. Zuckerberg's tone went from paternal lecture to martial exhortation, the drama mounting with every mention of the threat Google represented. The speech ended to a roar of cheering and applause. Everyone walked out of there ready to invade Poland if need be. It was a rousing performance. Carthage must be destroyed. The Facebook Analog Research Laboratory jumped into action and produced a poster with Carthago Delende Est splashed in imperative bold type over a stylized Roman centurion's helmet. This improvised print shop printed all manner of posters and ephemera, often distributed semi-furtively at nights and on weekends in a fashion reminiscent of Soviet samizdat. The art itself was always exceptional, evoking both the mechanical topography of World War II-era propaganda posters and contemporary Internet design, complete with faux-vintage logos. This was Facebook's Ministry of Propaganda, and it was originally started with no official permission or budget, in an unused warehouse space. In many ways, it was the finest exemplar of Facebook values, irreverent and bracing in its martial qualities. The Carthago posters went up immediately all over the campus and were stolen almost as fast. It was announced that the cafes would be open over the weekends, and the proposal was seriously floated to have the shuttles from Palo Alto and San Francisco run on the weekends too. This would make Facebook a fully seven-days-a-week company, by whatever means employees were expected to be in and on duty. In what was perceived as a kindly concession to the few employees with families, it was also announced that families were welcome to visit on weekends and eat in the cafes, allowing the children to at least see Daddy. And yes, it was mostly Daddy, on weekend afternoons. British Trader and Zoe came by, and we weren't the only family there by any stretch. Common was the scene of the swamped Facebook employee with logoed hoodie spending an hour of quality time with his wife and two kids before going back to his desk. Internal Facebook groups sprang up to dissect every element of the Google Plus product. 
On the day Plus launched, I noted an ads product manager named Paul Adams in close conversation with Zuckerberg and a couple members of the high command inside a small conference room. As was well known, before he defected to Facebook, Paul had been one of the product managers for Google+. Now that the product had launched, he was no longer restrained by his non-disclosure agreement with Google, and Facebook was having him walk the leadership through the public aspects of the product. Facebook was not fucking around. This was total war. I decided to do some reconnaissance. En route to work one Sunday morning, I skipped the Palo Alto exit on the 101 and got off in Mountain View instead. Down shoreline I went and into the sprawling Google campus. The multicolored Google logo was everywhere, and clunky Google-colored bikes littered the courtyards. I had visited friends here before and knew where to find the engineering buildings. I made my way there and contemplated the parking lot. It was empty. Completely empty. Interesting. I got back on the 101 North and drove to Facebook. At the California Avenue building, I had to hunt for a parking spot. The lot was full. It was clear which company was fighting to the death. Carthage must be destroyed. Leaping Headlong For when I do leap into the abyss, I go headlong with my heels up and am pleased to be falling in that degrading attitude and consider it something beautiful. Fyodor Dostoevsky, The Brothers Karamazov August 2011 It was time to launch my first Facebook product. I had joined Facebook toward the beginning of a product initiative called Kitten, which was firmly within my targeting purview. Like Scuba, Radar, and Laser, Kitten was originally an acronym whose origins had been more or less forgotten. The name now simply referred to the current state of Facebook's topic extraction technology. Topic extraction is one of those critical but unsexy artificial intelligence challenges that underlie huge pieces of Internet technology, for example, Google Search, but never received the attention of sexy initiatives like self-driving cars. In essence, it's a programmatic way of mapping the convoluted parlance of human texts like messages, web pages, or social media posts into a dictionary of semantic categories. For example, your status update of Tiger really managed to hit that birdie in the U.S. Open would be automatically mapped to the categories Tiger Woods, Golf, and U.S. Open. In a world where human speech, rife with sarcasm, typos, slang, and double meanings, is devilishly difficult to understand, it's a sophisticated hack to quickly categorize a piece of user-generated content. In the case of ads, the goal was to put the person who had liked the Tiger Woods page or shared a link to a golf-related article in the golf targeting segment, reachable by golf-related advertisers. Personal anecdote, the inaugural product decision I made at Facebook was related to Kitten. My first week on the job, I was assigned to lead the weekly targeting team meeting, involving a dozen engineers, product marketers, and outside product managers. To say I was clueless was an understatement. Fortunately, the team's inertia more or less impelled the meeting forward, covering the list of agenda topics that the product manager who was filling in on targeting had provided. All eyes suddenly turned to me when there was disagreement over an explicit product decision. The question was this. How would these newfangled targeting topics, cleverly extracted from page names and user behavior, be denoted in the targeting user interface that advertisers use to configure their ads. Facebook already had interests targeting in the form of text strings like football and fashion. 
We needed some way to deploy these special super keywords that represented dozens or hundreds of other related categories of meaning. Part of the team wanted to do away with the original keywords altogether, forcing all advertisers to adopt the new, untested technology, creating a major operational challenge as advertisers struggled to adopt the new feature. Another faction wanted to simply launch the new features in addition to existing keywords and specially designate them somehow, either in the design of the user interface or via other means. As I'd soon learn, the tiebreaker role of the product manager, mediating between the internal dueling factions of a product team or channeling the voice of the eventual user among engineers lost in low-level technical detail, was pretty much the core workaday function of the job. Snapped to attention by over a dozen pairs of eyes, and with the bittersweet memory of the Twitter deal still in mind, without any hesitation, I suggested, Keep the old keywords, moving over the 20% of Facebook's revenue that uses keywords to a whole new paradigm will be untenable. In terms of markers, use a pound sign like Twitter hashtags. Users have already been conditioned to think of hashtag golf as a sort of uber symbol for the high-level abstract concept of golf. This will just draft off Twitter's work. Besides, it will be kind of funny. Twitter hashtags as buyable commodities on Facebook. This was obviously a winking reference to the company I'd just insultingly kissed off and would serve as a kind of gallows humor inside joke the team could laugh at months or years from now. The notion percolated through the room to eventual nodding agreement. Hundreds of thousands of advertisers spending hundreds of millions in marketing dollars would now be entering hashtag hip-hop music instead of Eminem, 50 Cent, Drake, and an endless list of relevant keywords they'd expensively determined via lots of trial and error as being relevant to their desired audience. The interface wouldn't have to change. Facebook design resources were always famously strained, meaning we could launch soon and no abrupt adoption challenge need be contemplated. We just had to market the hell out of these new targeting hashtags and train users to prefer them over the antiquated keywords they'd made part of their Facebook marketing workflow. That meant leaning on the product marketer to lean on our partners and biggest advertisers to make them think hashtag action movies was the hottest thing since democracy and antibiotics. Two days into my Facebook experience and I'd give an external form to a Facebook product. This may sound trivial, and in the scheme of things, it sort of was. But the mundane trade-offs of technical difficulty among various implementations, the prioritization of engineering time, the vagaries of user perception, and the demands of marketing a new product are the bread and butter of everyday product manager work. Flashy new flagship product launches, like a new iPhone birthed on a conference room stage by a strutting Steve Jobs, are what draw mainstream headlines and the attention of non-techie normals, like swine hearing the clanging of a swill bucket. But the beat to which the valley really marches, the actual workaday cadence of technological progress, is that line product manager in a conference room or an engineering bullpen alongside a team, like the first lieutenant leading a platoon in every great war film ever made, figuring out what to build, how to build it, and how to sell it once built. Thousands of such teams dot Silicon Valley, and it's how the work of technology development really gets done. By early August, two months after I joined, Kitten seemed ready to launch. Like knowing when to stop editing and finally publish a book, knowing when to launch is a subtle art at best, and a drunken coin toss at worst. Sometimes you don't finish a product, you merely abandon any hope of presently improving it, and out the door it goes. 
Product managers must either apply the brakes to impatient engineers who want their creations to see the light of day, or conversely, whip and drive to get perfectionist engineers to stop mucking with the code and procure some real users already. In general, be it at startups or aggressive companies like Facebook, there should be a cultural bias for launching. The perfect is very often the enemy of the good, and as the Facebook poster screamed from every wall, done is better than perfect. Very few companies have died due to launching early. At worst, you'll have a one-time product embarrassment, as Apple did with the first version of its iPhone Maps app. However, countless companies have died by losing the nerve to ship and freezing into a coma of second-guessing, hesitation, and internal indecision. As in life, so in business. Maintain a bias for action over inaction. With that thought, we slated a kitten launch for August 1, 2011. The product marketers weaved their seductive tales, the PM, that is me, ran around and made sure everyone knew what was going on, the engineers snuck in their last changes, probably without telling the PM. Then one fine morning, a kitten engineer manipulated the gatekeeping logic that exposed only employees to the new ads targeting, and any of Facebook's advertisers could aim money at our new hashtagged targeting segments. Footnote. Unsurprisingly, for a company that was so high on its own supply, a commonly used test set for products was employees themselves, and there was an easy way to limit a product to internal use only. End footnote. The new targeting was then aimed at all users later that same day, and Kitten was out in the product wild. There was some minimal turbulence due to minor technical bugs, as well as to one or another team being out of the loop. But otherwise, a major new feature affecting a fifth of Facebook's revenue launched without a hitch. While the success was only marginally related to my skill, I received praise from the ads leadership for pulling off an aggressive product launch within a few weeks of joining. In essence, I had earned my spurs. I had safely shipped new product the market seemed to want, leveraging an engineering team that respected my product guidance and with a plan to iterate the product going forward, with metrics to mark our progress. In a nutshell, that's what Facebook expected of its product managers. Per that last point, in order to mark progress, which in ads always meant numbers prefixed by dollar signs, we built a dashboard showing a line graph of Facebook ad spend by type of targeting now including kitten, along with keywords broad targeting, for example, mothers or business travelers, and things like gender and geography. Effectively, it was the fraction of total spend we'd managed to capture via this new targeting product. A metrics dashboard that the entire team fixates on was standard Facebook practice. Those scorecards should obsess the product manager, should be the last thing he thinks of at night and the first thing he thinks of in the morning, and should be known to him from memory down to the decimal. Choose well what goes in that line graph, because whatever it is, a good product manager will slave away until it's going up and to the right, whatever that figure represents. You make what you measure, so measure carefully. Once launched, Kitten became Facebook ad's sausage grinder, ingesting all sorts of user actions, from messages to posts to the contents of shared links and turning them into targeting topics of various stripes. With every new piece of Facebook user data ingested, the targeting team did a test against the previous topic targeting ingredients, seeing if the new inputs, for example user check-ins, improved the ads that were served to those users in the form of increased performance and ultimately revenue. 
In time, this effort would assume more systematic shape, taking the name Project Chorizo. I even hung a real length of Spanish chorizo from my monitor as a rallying symbol, and the targeting team got down to the serious business of monetizing every last user action on Facebook. Just as my first view of Facebook's high-level revenue dashboard proved a dispiriting exercise, Chorizo's final results, which took months to produce, were a similar tale of woe. No user data we had, if fed freely into the topics that Facebook's savviest marketers used to target their ads, improved any performance metric we had access to. That meant that advertisers trying to find someone who, say, wanted to buy a car, benefited not at all from all the car chatter taking place on Facebook. It was as if we had fed a mile-long train full of meat cows into a slaughterhouse and had come out with one measly sausage to show for it. It was incomprehensible, and it tested my faith, which, believe it or not, I certainly had at that time, in Facebook's claim to unique primacy in the realm of user data. As with many mysteries of my newfound religion, experience would disabuse me of much dearly held belief. One Shot, One Kill Footnote One Shot, One Kill is the motto of the U.S. Marine Corps Scout Snipers, that branch's unit of elite shooters. It's also the mantra of most ethical hunters. End footnote. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. General John Sedgwick, shortly before being shot by a Confederate sniper, Battle of Spotsylvania, 1864. Why was it so hard to make money off Facebook's data? Here's the best metaphor for understanding Facebook and its attendant data monetization challenges. Imagine yourself in a noisy, busy bar in the lively downtown of any large city in America. People chatting with friends, perhaps making new ones, taking the odd photo, hitting on someone attractive, and so forth. Facebook is that bar, and every other bar in Europe, and every busy coffee house in the Middle East, and every cafe in Latin America. Facebook is the rowdy assemblage of humanity talking, gossiping, flirting, sharing, and creating experiences. Now imagine you have a written transcript of every conversation taking place, as well as an anonymous ID for every individual. You know where they are and whom they're talking with. As the product manager for Facebook's ad targeting, that's effectively what you've got. Sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Well, it isn't. Ask yourself how often you mention anything of commercial import when you're with friends around a sticky table in your favorite dive bar. If you had the chief marketing officers of every big brand and every merchant in the world listening over your shoulder, how often would their collective ears perk up? Actually, I know exactly how often. It's one of the earliest studies we did when I got to Facebook. The short version is, not terribly often at all. Nobody says things like, I really love how these Adidas Adazero Boston Boost 5 shoes felt today, and I think you should buy some as well. Adidas, get in here and establish some brand value with the friend while her mind is vulnerable. Or some beautifully parsable phrase like, I need to fly on July 13th to Boston, returning on July 23rd, and wish to spend no more than $350. TripAdvisor, get in here with a fair quote. And when it does, things aren't as simple as they seem. I can almost guarantee you that when the text string Obama appears, in either a message or a post, in the Facebook equivalent of a bar in Alabama on a Friday night, half the time it is preceded by the word fucking, and you probably shouldn't add that person to your hashtag Democratic Party targeting cluster 
unless you want him to X out every goddamn smiling Obama photo that's going to take over his Facebook experience. Footnote. Facebook ads have clickable menu in their upper right-hand corner, featuring an X button, which allows the user to leave negative feedback. That's used by Facebook to filter ads. End footnote. Which, incidentally, is going to make Obama ads delivery tank due to all the negative feedback, which means their account manager will soon be emailing you wondering why they can't spend their budget, and fuck you. It's your problem, and you'll grow to hate every goddamned redneck in Alabama and the Obama campaign for monitoring its ad stats so closely. Oh, ignore any mention of an interesting word with fucking preceding it? Brilliant idea. How about when a message says, What a great President Obama turned out to be, eh? Accompanied by a smirk. You didn't see the smirk in the actual wording, of course. Damn. Last I checked, no one's written a human sarcasm code module that flags backhanded statements. And the interwebs are rife with more sarcasm, lies, bad puns, and double entendres than a high school cheerleaders convention. Oh, and by the way, you need to solve this problem in every language in the world, because that's how international Facebook is. How's your Tigrinya? This last point is more than a rhetorically flip answer and bears some scrutiny. If you asked any Facebooker why he or she worked at the company, the first answer would be some variant of the scale, the magnitude. Essentially, the fact that Facebook had hundreds of millions, soon to be billions, of users. Someone on the non-ads, user-facing side of the company could launch any random feature or product and instantly, by mere virtue of being on Facebook, you'd have hundreds of millions of users, despite its maybe being a bomb of a product. And Facebook was so boldly reckless, it launched lots of bombs. These were numbers unavailable anywhere except perhaps Google, numbers that dwarfed whatever startup you might have been at, where you were lucky if you got to 100,000 users. That scale worked against you when you were on the ad side, though. It was clear from Gokul's management ethos, which was essentially go big or go home, that we were being tasked with finding the one breakout product, a la Google AdWords, that would completely change Facebook's fortunes. Given Facebook's revenues, which were already huge, remember, a billion times anything, it was very difficult to make a dent in the income statement with any product. Countless were the ideas suggested, either by some well-meaning engineer or salesperson, or even by members of the targeting team, mostly niche-use cases that would benefit some subspecies of advertiser and generate all of maybe $20 million in revenue. That would be an awesome sum in a startup, as again would be 50 million users for your product right out of the gate. But it was nothing in a scheme of $2 billion in annual revenues, and not worth the effort to get it off the ground. Bucketing users in a congressional district and allowing political advisors to target specific voting precincts? Nope. Sounds good, but political budgets on Facebook were relatively small then, and materialized only every four years for an election. Using a dictionary of Spanish names, along with the use of Spanish in messages originating in the United States for a Hispanic cluster, appealing to advertisers trying to cash in on that demographic segment with growing buying power? Nope. Not that many people fall into the bucket. And anyhow, tests didn't show much of an uptick in engagement with Hispanic ads. Users were as confused as delighted by them and didn't click through. Using geographic data to discern whether someone is traveling far from home and then hitting that person with ads for the travel and tender segment, that is, that flavor of affluent business traveler who needs greater access to airfare and hotels? Nope again. 
Geographic data is tricky for various reasons not worth exploring here, and it was clear our simple heuristics were not locating the guy with the corporate Amex and a love of legroom and minibars. Even if any of these had worked, and this is but a tiny sampling of the barrage of ideas discussed, the financial impact would still have been relatively small. Facebook's revenue in the early days almost doubled yearly, and even now it grows by a whopping 30% or more per year. To earn your beer money as product manager, you had to move that revenue needle a good 5% or so. That was about $100 million in revenue per year you had to generate, the equivalent of two or three Wall Street traders at a bank like Goldman. Between your uptick, the 5% from optimization, user growth of 20%, and whatever other 5% bumps from other new products, Facebook would have a good year. Footnote. Optimization was on the other side of the ads data coin from targeting. The latter involves advertisers using their knowledge and user data to select which user sees which ad. The former involves the ad network, in this case Facebook, using its data around user behavior to choose who sees which ad. The two exist in a frenemy relationship of both symbiosis and opposition. The network would rather control ad delivery itself via optimization, while the advertiser wants the power to control what it spends money on via targeting as well as the ability to build a storehouse of in-house marketing knowledge. In a world of perfect, omniscient optimization, targeting would be unnecessary, and vice versa. End footnote. But that meant the bar on ideas was very high indeed. Often an unsexy idea that was programmatic and platform-wide, like the first iteration of Kitten, which merely classified your likes and interests better, had more impact than cool and whizzy ideas like political targeting. As product manager, you were like a portfolio manager, betting on sets of ideas, hoping to back a winner, often based on little more than intuition. To say I was following the Facebook dictum, get in over your head, was putting it mildly. I had no idea what I was doing, but neither did the other product managers, from what I could tell. We were all making it up as we went along, some of us more skillfully than others. Twice bitten, thrice shy. What man has bent o'er his son's sleep to brood how that face shall watch his when cold it lies, or thought as his own mother kissed his eyes of what her kiss was when his father wooed? Dante Gabriel Rossetti, The House of Life. September 3, 2011. A second birth is considerably less dramatic than the first. If still somewhat risky, you at least know the flavor of risk involved and don't dupe yourself with the thought of somehow controlling the proceedings. It's a crapshoot. The umbilical cord could wrap itself around the baby's neck, and there's little you can do about it. Since I had moved out of British traders to a temporary San Francisco sublet, I got news of the labor via phone and raced back to the same maternity ward at Oakland's Kaiser Permanente Hospital. This birth, unlike Zoe's, did not end in the time it took to watch an episode of House of Cards, but was the sort of slow slog I'd always feared. Thirty tense and sleepy hours later, I had a son. British Trader and I had the same deadlocked debate over names as we had with Zoe Ayala. The combined constraints of Hebrew and Hispanic cultures were impossible on the male side, so negotiations rapidly broke down into uncompromising personal favorites. Then there was also the issue of circumcision. British traders' Judaism demanded it, but she herself was equivocal. 
Taking one look at my son's little wee-wee, I suddenly reeled at the thought of circumcision. You want to do what to it? I traded veto rights on the first name. I still had full middle name rights for exclusive rights over the circumcision decision. British trader chose her personal favorite, Noah, which I liked both for being biblical and for the boat-building credentials implicit in the name. I chose Pelayo for the middle name, after the 8th-century Visigoth nobleman who initiated the 7th-century-long struggle to free Spain from Islamic rule. Thus did Noah Pelayo come into the world, and I was the father to a son as well as a daughter. My father's advice, like perhaps the advice in this book, was typically prescriptive of precisely what not to do in life, and I generally ignored it. But occasionally he had moments of clear-eyed brilliance, letting instructive gems drop into the otherwise barren suburban wasteland of my childhood. One such gem was discussing the matter of the then-burgeoning Miami drug trade. This was the go-go 80s, when wholesale drug trafficking was a semi-viable career option in Miami, though a short-lived one, even for a family man. We had several in our loose social circle, including more than one neighbor, who were in that trade. The thing about being a marimbero isn't the personal risk. It's the fact they can come after your family. Footnote. Marimbero is Cuban slang for a large-scale drug trafficker, equivalent to the more common term narco. Of indeterminate origin, la marimba is slang for the drug trade as a whole, of which Miami can claim a healthy stake. Curiously, the standard Spanish and English meaning of marimba is a wooden xylophone-like instrument common in South America. It caused considerable confusion when I moved from Miami to the United States, that is, moved away for college, and encountered an amateur musician who claimed to be terribly into the marimba. I was momentarily aghast. End footnote. They could come after you, he said, pointing right at me. It was well known that after a botched deal or missed shipment, marimberos, particularly those savages the Colombians, would come after your family, snatch your daughter or son, and mail you their fingers one after another until you paid up. My father stuck to the relatively low-margin business of buying and selling real estate instead, and my fingers remained safely attached. This memory was rattling in my head when I pondered my new child and the woman who'd borne him. The British trader romantic fire was still smoldering enough to be reignited, if need be. But then, that would be doing the bourgeois family thing full-on, with combined finances, expectations of pricey schools, mortgages, the entire needy contraption of settled-down life. To me, only the man who needed nothing was truly free. Until I was financially independent, for example, fuck you money, or the captain of a profitable enterprise, I was merely a slave whose bondage was worth one or another price, locked in as much by diapers and tuition costs as by a vesting schedule. Like being a Miami marimbero, working at Facebook and signing up for daddyhood presented a harsh trade-off, at least in my mind. Sure, it paid well, but if you cranked up your lifestyle to the level of your means, then you were beholden to your industry and the people who ran it. I was in deep reruns, dating from the Goldman days, of being surrounded by professional peers in hock to their pricey lifestyles. Facebook couldn't mail me Zoe's fingers until I came up with a new targeting idea, but they sure could pull the plug on the equity gravy train that was paying for Zoe's hypothetical $2,500 a month preschool in Menlo Park. Did I really want to be the Willie Loman figure? Coming home after a shitty day at work, having a beer, but thinking it all worthwhile after staring into Zoe's eyes, 
and then glumly taking the boss's shit again the next day? Because that's what it would be when we slapped the Bay Area mortgage, date night in Palo Alto, and two preschools onto the cash flow statement. All my Facebook colleagues in the over-30 cohort were in that dependent boat. Facebook said jump, and they could only ask how high. And jump they did, reciting whatever corporate script and leaping through whatever hoops their paymaster required, down to the logoed onesie they'd slap on their newborns, photos posted on Facebook to the online applause of their equally enslaved colleagues. You'll no doubt find this argument self-serving, the ranting of a selfish cad trying to justify his egotism, and perhaps you're right. However, having grown to adulthood under a tyrannical father I loathed, and whose oppressive presence I never stopped dreaming of escaping, I found the thought of submitting to yet another master repugnant, not to mention never wanting to relive any sort of family situation as either child or parent ever again for the same reasons of personal history. I couldn't do it. No matter the paternal draw of vulnerable newborn Noah, nor the charms and wiles of always clever Zoe. Informally, British Trader and I worked out a payment schedule that complied with recommended California state child support levels, like the Civil War draft, in which the wealthy could pay a commoner to take their spot on the firing line. I paid my way out of fatherhood, mostly out of fear of the compromise to freedom it represented. I retained visitation rights, but those would be conditional on my always rocky relationship with British Trader. It would suck, but I was ambiguous about my suitability as a father anyhow, as was British Trader. From my own experience, better no father than a bad father. On the domestic front, I was still living in a string of temporary sublets around San Francisco's Mission District, but matters would soon become more anchored. I bought a 37-foot sailboat with the upfront cash component of the Facebook deal. The boat was somewhat improbably located in Baltimore, so I had it trucked across the United States to Oakland, where I re-rigged and launched it after months of working in the boatyard. Footnote. Yes, the same boatyard where a random run-in with British trader's ex almost ended the relationship. I'd have no heirs now had I not wooed her back, and had she not allowed herself to be wooed. We humans like to think we're in control of our lives, but it's just matter, energy, and ego interacting randomly forever. End footnote. Finding moorage at the southernmost marina in the San Francisco Bay Area, a few miles north of Facebook in Redwood City, I commuted to work from my Miami Vice-esque Bohemia via bicycle. As stated, my decision to live on a sailboat was based less on a desire for eccentric living and more on a visceral rejection of the bougie lifestyle that was otherwise my lot. If I had a boat to go back to, Facebook could dominate my life only so much, or so I thought. The open ocean always awaited beckoningly, whispering at me to undo the dock lines and go. Also, where else could I live in the Bay Area for $700 per month? Ads 5.0 There are three universal symbols on this planet the dollar sign, tits, and the soccer ball. Poe Bronson, Game Day at San Quentin. November 1st, 2011 In the waning weeks of 2011, Facebook continued to strain mightily under the specter of Google+. Initial usage numbers published by Google were eye-popping, claiming hundreds of millions of users and embodying every Facebooker's worst nightmare of being overwhelmed by the Mountain View Company's greater engineering numbers, not to mention its still-dominant position as the default website to the world. Professionally, I had well and truly been assimilated, at least overtly. 
My everyday work uniform had devolved to jeans, t-shirt, and a Facebook zipped fleece, a uniform that was conspicuous even by Facebook grunt standards. Footnote. One Halloween, Ben Reisman, an ads engineer we'll meet later, came dressed as me as a costume. His choice of ratty jeans and fleece was dead on. We took a side-by-side photo and posted it to Facebook, of course. End footnote. Workwise, I continued my Sisyphean task of somehow recycling user data to increase our low click-through rates. Facebook ads at that point were ugly, small, postage-stamped-sized picture-and-text combinations on the far right side of the user's screen, mostly ignored by users. The thought of commercial content inside the newsfeed was still sacrilegious and not mentioned in polite company. The mere thought of using outside data in Facebook ads delivery was similarly heretical and not even considered. In this chaotic period, before the imposed revenue and product discipline of the IPO period, the Facebook ads product team continued to move to the haphazard beat of Gokul's leadership. PMs were often randomly bequeathed products after another product manager had left, been fired, or was transferred to some other project, whether or not they had any qualification to lead that team or if that product should even exist. Via that product roulette, I came to manage the ads review and quality team, in addition to the ads targeting team. Like the Department of Homeland Security, ads review and quality had a grandiloquent title that couched a good amount of power but also a fair amount of day-to-day slapstick incompetence. Similar to the noble souls who defend our borders, Ads Review, for short, was the guardian of the Facebook ads team, sussing out obscene ads, click fraud, payment fraud, and every flavor of shenanigan where the money rubber hit the pixel road, so to speak. The team consisted of two overworked engineers, coding everything from the front-end user interfaces that fraud specialists use to patrol ads to the sophisticated machine learning algorithms used to launch them onto a potential consumer's screen. It also involved risk and fraud teams in Austin, Texas and Bangalore, India. These operations specialists, who did the actual scanning of pre-processed and pre-filtered photos, were trained to spot violations of Facebook ads policy. Some violations were tame, including text in an image, which advertisers would do to cram in more alarming ad copy was one. Some were more universal in the Bronsonian sense. One violation we memorably failed to catch was an Israeli manicuring salon that ran a photo of a woman's very well-groomed pubis. It was so sleek and almost abstract, the reviewer failed to see what it was. In cases like this, the review function was effectively crowdsourced by the users themselves. Angry pearl clutchers everywhere would click the X in the upper right-hand corner of the ad and indignantly leave feedback. The software would calculate rates of negative feedback, weighting the most egregious reasons cited most heavily, misleading, offensive, or sexually inappropriate, MOSI for short, and triggering a re-review of that ad. A rejection would propagate to all versions of that image inside the ad system, minimizing the amount of human intervention required and avoiding a duplication of effort. Unscrupulous advertisers had their wiles, however, reformatting images or changing things like colors or focus slightly so that a bit-by-bit comparison would fail to equate an already flagged photo with a new image that had just been submitted. By changing the image at the bit level, they avoided the filter, even if the image looked roughly the same to the human eye. To counteract this gaming, the photo comparison software that propagated decisions had to be made fuzzy and inexact to account for this. Machine learning models were trained to find obvious signs of scams in ad copy. Free iPad was one such telltale.
The user interfaces were constantly improved to make the human reviewers' tasks easier and more efficient, so that we wouldn't need to hire more expensive humans. It was a terrible assignment for anybody who wanted to make his or her mark at Facebook, and it would take me months to scheme myself out of it. But before that, I had to appear as the face of this ad's police department, one of the airport security lines at Facebook. Ads review and quality was officially part of product and engineering, but it worked for sales and operations, which was Cheryl's grand fiefdom. Cheryl, of course, was much more than merely Zuck's consigliere and the ads team's intercessor within the senior management stratum of the company. She was the able leader of this vast, multi-tiered organization, with an ever-shifting cast of names and titles spanning the geographically fragmented organization. This world encompassed everything from senior ad executives closing deals with Coca-Cola to junior user operations people deleting a fake account. In many ways, this was the boiler room of the Facebook money machine, or at least its human-powered factory floor, and Cheryl was its unquestioned overseer. Every quarter, Cheryl scheduled a gargantuan meeting meant to show off the wonderful tools engineering was building for sales, and how well the hybrid engineering operations teams were collaborating. Cheryl's managerial prowess was on full display in these powwows as she skillfully held court among the assembled lieutenants of the various sub-realms. Picking up subtle psychological cues from an off-the-cuff remark here, unearthing some lingering issue that lay dormant over there, making sure every voice was heard but no voice heard too much, tamping down some burst of irrelevant drama to keep the action moving, the woman knew how to run a room full of big names and even bigger egos. The meeting was held in the PC Load Letter Conference Room, which was one of the cavernous spaces used for only the largest or most senior meetings. Footnote. Facebook conference names were grouped geographically into themes, often joke mashups, like portmanteau malapropisms. For example, one theme combined Star Wars with alcoholic drinks, producing such gems as Jar Jar Drinks, Sith on the Beach, and my favorite, It's a Trap, T-R-A-P-P-E. In this case, PC Load Letter, which was an error message on old laser printers and which triggered a printer-destroying mob in that comedic classic office space, stood for Paper Cassette Load Letter, and I presume, though I can't remember, other nearby conference rooms partook of the same theme. End footnote. Cheryl sat at the 50-yard line of the football field-sized table with Don Fall literally at her right hand. Fall was a former Marine platoon leader and Googler who ran online operations, the busy human workflow of keeping the non-technical side of an ads machine going. He resembled a more strapping version of Don Draper. I sat at the 25-yard line, near the screen where we'd be projecting. The room started filling quickly with pairs or triplets of product managers, ENG managers, and ops managers. Mark Rabkin was there as my engineering analog, one of the first engineering hires in Facebook ads, and a man who'd soon assume a real importance in the organization. Also, there was David Clune, the operational head of the Austin-based ads police, and the one who had done most of the work on the slides I'd be presenting. First up in the Cheryl show was a product manager named Dan Rubenstein. Dan resembled a Woody Allen figure, short, thin, nebbish, but without the crackling anxiety. Also a former Googler, he seemed like one of those old PM hands who always made sure to take good notes and get his weekly report in on time. He fronted for user ops, which was the user police, and the user-facing version of what I did on the ad side. 
Ever wonder why your feed never features any form of porn or otherwise grotesque imagery? It's because the team in UserOps has managed to sift through the billion photos uploaded a day and pick out a pile of offensive needles in an internet-scale haystack. On the screen now, Dan launched a demo of a tool that was essentially that. Unloading the web app, a raft of user photos appeared, which a user ops analyst could easily click to eliminate, like plucking weeds from a garden. That image would be banished forever, including versions with small color changes or cropping done by veteran spammers and sketchy ad types. As he walked the room through the demo, he would click on an image of a kitten. Kittens evidently represented the porny pictures they'd normally filter, and that kitten would be gone, as well as all variants of that kitten image. Click, ban, reload, click, ban, reload. A well-oiled kitten banning machine, ladies and gentlemen. Suddenly, Cheryl interrupted. So what's with all the kittens? Dan, a bit startled, peered at Cheryl, clearly confused. Why are all the bad photos kittens? Dan flatly replied, We use kittens as the bad photos in demos because the real bad photos are, you know, kind of obscene. Right, said Cheryl but why kittens and not something else? The room was deathly signed with 30-plus sets of twitchy eyes rising from barely concealed phones and laptops to stare at Dan and his kitten-banning machine. You could almost hear everyone mentally asking in chorus, Yeah, what is it with the kittens? Dan looked up at the screen as if noticing the kitten pics for the first time and then turned to Cheryl and answered, almost under his breath, well, for demo purposes, we don't show really bad photos, so the engineers use kittens instead because, you know, kittens and cats are like put. He stopped right there, but he almost said pussy in front of the queen of lean, Cheryl Sandberg. Got it, she expectorated. After sucking in a lungful of air, as if loading for a verbal barrage, she continued. If there were women on that team, they'd never, ever choose those photos as demo pics. I think you should change them immediately. Before the salvo had even finished, Dan's head was bowed, and he was madly taking notes in a small notebook. Change pussy photos now, one imagined they read. He looked like a 40-year-old scolded child. I was dying inside. You could feel either awkwardness or repressed laughter seething from everyone in the room at this unprecedented display of management wrath and PM stupidity. Demoing the pussy filter to Cheryl. Epic. Dan limped along with the rest of his demo, and then it was my turn. After that high-water mark of incompetence, it was hard to fuck things up. I glided through the slides, lingering on the money shot, a plot of the number of ads reviewed versus human man-hours. The former was up and to the right. More ads. The latter was flat. Fewer expensive humans. All was right with the ads review world. I drowsed through the other presentations and bolted at the first opportunity. Ads review was but one of the security teams at Facebook charged with the monumental task of protecting one-fourth of the Internet globally which is what Facebook represents, from scammers, hucksters, pornographers, sexual predators, violent criminals, and every kind of human detritus. It's a noble struggle, despite my lack of enthusiasm for engaging in it myself, and one whose combatants work mostly in the shadows. As with all police or spy agencies, the failures of the Facebook security teams were widely trumpeted, but successes rarely heralded. You moan about your friend's breastfeeding photo being flagged, but fail to notice the complete lack of porn in your newsfeed. 
It's a thankless job that appeals to those with a certain shepherd dog mentality, or simply to people who, Dexter-like, are themselves rogues and black hat hackers who'd rather use their skills for good. Our social shadow warriors did have one showcase. There was an internal Facebook group with the provocative name of Scalps at Facebook. It was essentially an online trophy case of taxidermy delinquents, the sexual predators, stalkers, and wife-beaters whom the FB's security team, in conjunction with law enforcement, had managed to catch. The weird thing about it was that the posts featured profile photos of the alleged criminals, along with somewhat gloating accounts of how the perp had been hunted down and which local law enforcement agencies had collaborated. And so Facebook employees would randomly see in their feed the guilty face of depraved desire. Some guy in the Philippines or Arkansas and his rap sheet about trying to induce 14-year-old girls to meet him, along with a line or two indicating he had been summarily dispatched into the maw of the legal system. So why doesn't Facebook make more of this safeguarding role? I don't know the official answer, but I can speculate. If Facebook were to publicize its very real efforts at stopping crime, People might associate the blue-framed window with the thought of some predatory creeper. As is, many people have an ambiguous relationship with Facebook. Just imagine the headline, Facebook catches 36 sexual predators this month. Some bespectacled 40-something mother in Wisconsin, hair in a bun and pearls tightly gripped, announces to her husband, Honey, I just know we should get Megan off that Facebook thing. Look, it's just crawling with perverts. This is, of course, a ridiculous view. Nobody thinks AT&T should be shut down when criminals use the phone system to commit a crime, or the U.S. Postal Service regulated when a terrorist sends a bomb through the mail. But the average Facebook user considers the service to be some sort of frivolous toy, rather than a social utility on par with running water, and therefore thinks we can just shut it down if it seems to harbor any hint of criminality. Like the CIA not exactly advertising the drone strike that vaporized a vehicle in some godforsaken land and prevented the next terrorist tragedy from happening, Facebook keeps quiet all it does for users to protect them from humanity's worst. Whine if you must about the odd, erroneously flagged post, but spare a thought for the Facebook security team, those dedicated geeks in the watchtower. They've likely put away as many, if not more, bad guys than your local law enforcement agency, and they keep their vigilant guard with nary a thanks from users. Perhaps, just once, marvel at your Facebook experience, at its almost total lack of pornography, spam, hate speech, and general human detritus, and consider what spectacular systems and expertise must exist for a few hundred people to safeguard the online experience of 1.5 billion users fully a fifth of humanity on a continual 24-7 basis.